Let's take our Bibles and turn over to Luke chapter 24. Gospel of Luke chapter number 24. My, what a beautiful music package this morning. Uh, centering our focus and our attention on what Christianity is all about. And what Jesus Christ was launching on this evening of Resurrection Sunday that we read about in Luke chapter 24 and in John chapter 20. Luke chapter 24, there's one verse, and, uh, and then we're going to spend um, our time in John chapter 20, more than Luke. What comes to your mind when you hear the mention of the Holy Spirit? Is he mysterious to you? Is he a part of your life? Do you ever talk to him? Is he real? The bottom line up front, the bluff of the morning message this morning is you need the Holy Spirit. You really do need him. Dramatically because of what we've just sung about and heard sung about this morning. This great work of the salvation of souls is a work of the Holy Spirit. And our role in the process of God saving an unsaved person requires the Holy Spirit to be working in our lives. And that's why the Holy Spirit took front and center stage at this part of Jesus' sermon on the Sunday evening of Resurrection Sunday. Our focus has been here at the end of Luke's Gospel on Jesus Christ launching New Testament Christianity on Sunday evening, in the Sunday evening service on the day of his resurrection. He met with his assembled church that evening, and he launched New Testament Christianity. He laid down some foundational principles. We saw a few weeks ago how that Jesus Christ started by changing the emotional failure of his church. They were hiding in fear. They were disillusioned. They couldn't understand. They had just watched Jesus crucified. And now he's gone. And they're confused and disillusioned and afraid that they're going to be killed next. And so they're hiding behind locked doors. The first thing Jesus did on that Sunday evening church service on Resurrection Sunday is that he fixed the problem of their emotional brokenness. And he turned them from fearful people hiding into bold proponents of the gospel of Jesus Christ to turn the world upside down. We spent a Sunday morning a few weeks ago learning how Jesus did that in that sermon. And then we saw Jesus Christ, once he had their emotional life turned around and they were excited, they were on fire, and they were were bold, Jesus Christ laid down a skeleton outline of New Testament Christianity. In our last message, we saw the six characteristics of New Testament Christianity that the rest of the New Testament unfolded and added details and expanded. The last of those characteristics was a characteristic I just just felt we needed to come back to one time before 
we all stand together, Lord willing, next Sunday and we look up into the clouds and, and watch Jesus ascend back into heaven. But I felt we needed to take just one opportunity to look at what Jesus Christ said about the Holy Spirit and the role that he plays in our lives and the great importance that he plays in the evangelization of the world and in the work of New Testament Christianity. So this morning I want us to consider that Jesus Christ in his Sunday evening sermon in Luke chapter 24 verse 49 said, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. And I want you to notice that carefully. I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. What does the Holy Spirit have to do with your life? What involvement does he have in your life? How important is he to you in your life? Is he an afterthought? Is he just somebody that's mysterious that I don't really understand? Do I every day realize what he's in my life for and what he's doing or wanting to do in my life? That's what I want us to consider this morning. The promise that Jesus Christ made. You realize when, when, when Jesus made a promise, this is huge. And I want us to see the promise Jesus made to his apostles. There are three important statements I want to make this morning. You see them in your little worksheet this morning. The first statement is Jesus made a promise to you. He made a promise to those apostles. The promise he made to those apostles in the launching of Christianity was a promise to you personally. This is the promise of Jesus Christ. He called it in verse 49, the promise of my Father. Jesus is relaying and owning a promise he's making to the apostles and to every believer in Jesus Christ that has come down these last 2,000 years. This promise involves power. Power to evangelize the world. What is this promise all about? Well, you got to go back three days. This is Sunday night, Resurrection Sunday. Sunday night, Jesus Christ said, you know, there's a promise that's been made to you, and that promise is going to be kept. When did he give that promise? Well, he talked about it three days earlier. On the evening that he spent with the, with the apostles in the upper room, the night that he will be arrested. And so I want you to turn back to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. We're going to not come back to uh, Luke chapter 24. There's some things in the Gospel of John. John gives a greatly expanded discussion of what happened that night in the upper room. And he also adds some details to what Jesus said on Sunday night when he reminded them of this promise that he made. So back to John chapter 14. I want you to look at verse number 15. Just reading a couple of verses here. John chapter 14, verse number 15. Jesus said, I will not leave you comfortless. By the way, if you saw that word comfortless, if you saw that in the original language that they spoke at the time and saw that written out in English alphabet letters, it would look like the word orphan. That's what it means. That's where this word comfortless comes from. 
Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you orphans. You know, the plight of an orphan is serious. You got to fend for yourself. You're an orphan. Nobody's responsible for you. Nobody's taking care of you. You're an orphan. Jesus said, I won't do that to you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you yet a little while. And the world seeth me no more, but ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in the, world, in the Father, and the Father in me. Jesus Christ, here in John chapter 14, I'm sorry, I meant to start at verse number 15. I began at the wrong verse, I apologize. Verse 15, if, if you love me, keep my commandments, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth. And he went down on down to talk about not leaving them orphans. Jesus Christ promised that he was at his departure going to send them another comforter. And he called that other comforter the spirit of truth. If you come down to verse 26, Jesus said, But the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. Jesus promised this comforter was going to come. Called him the Holy Ghost. He would be sent. If you flip over to chapter 16 and verse number 7, still in the upper room, chapter 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. Jesus Christ promised them that his departure was going to trigger a promise being fulfilled. The promise was that the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, another comforter would come. He would not leave them orphans. He would be with them in the person of the Holy Spirit. God would be with them in the person of the Holy Spirit. This is a huge promise that he made. In chapter, you might want to stick something there in John, because we're going to come back, but jump over to Acts chapter number 1. Acts chapter number 1, I'm wanting you to see this promise that Jesus Christ and God the Father made. In Acts chapter 1, and in verse number 4, Acts chapter 1 verse 4, they are now on the day that Jesus will ascend back to heaven. And they're assembled together, verse 4, being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise... Of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. He reminds them again. This is the day that he'll ascend back. This is 40 days after Resurrection Sunday. And he's reminding them again. This promise that has been made. Jesus made a promise. The promise had to do with the Holy Spirit. And this promise, when fulfilled, will change everything. This is huge. The Holy Spirit's going to come as a promised one that they might not be orphans, but that God might be with them. And this Spirit is going to change everything about them. Let me make a second statement this morning. The second statement is that Jesus fulfilled His promise. He fulfilled His promise. How did He fulfill the promise? And when did he fulfill the promise? And what difference did the promise make in their lives? That the fulfillment of the promise would come in two parts 
is hinted at by the use of pronouns. The Holy Spirit will come in you. The Holy Spirit will come on you. In is not on. And on is not in. But Jesus used both pronouns to speak of the fulfillment of the promise whereby the Spirit of God would be sent to go into them and the Holy Spirit would be sent to come upon them. And each of those parts of the promise are rich with practical meaning of value to what the Holy Spirit means in my life. So the first part of the promise is when the Holy Spirit came into them. In John chapter 14, back in John 14 verse 16, Jesus Christ said, He dwelleth with you and shall be in you. He's he's always been with you. But something's going to change. He's going to come in you. Later in the unfolding of truth in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, the Bible says, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? Which ye have of God and you're not your own? The Holy Spirit inside of you, your body becoming the house in which the Holy Spirit lives. This is the first part of the fulfillment of the promise So a couple of questions on your little worksheet. When does the Holy Spirit indwell people? Are you still there in John? Look at John 20. This is from the passage that Pastor Chris read a few moments ago. This is a parallel passage with Luke 24. This again is Sunday evening on Resurrection Sunday. Jesus Christ is in the Sunday evening church service with his gathered church. And he's launching New Testament Christianity. And in that Sunday evening service, he outlined the characteristics of New Testament Christianity. One of which was to remind them of the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now something that happened that night that Luke does not record, but that John does record, is found in the passage that Pastor Chris read. And that is found in verse number 22. Verse number 22, let me read verse 21 and 22. Jesus said to them again, peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said thus, he breathed on them and saith unto them, receive ye the Holy Ghost. So when did the Holy Spirit indwell the apostles? On Sunday night, on Resurrection Sunday. Jesus breathed on them. You understand that the word spirit is the word breath. Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. And those apostles were indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit that Sunday night on Resurrection Sunday. That was the historic initial indwelling of the Holy Spirit when he came into them. Well, when I wasn't there, when does he come into me? Well, we know from a couple of other passages that, uh, that he comes into us the moment we get saved. And I'll show you that in just a few moments. But let me say then, what benefits 
does the indwelling Holy Spirit bring to me? Is this theological jargon? Is this theology class kind of stuff? Does this have anything practical to do with me today? Oh, it has so much practical implications to you today. What are the benefits that I receive by the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of me? Well, I listed three at the bottom of the page. The first one is I know that I know that I know that I'm saved. You know how I know I'm saved? Not because I wrote in my Bible the day I prayed some words. You know how I know I'm saved? Not because I can remember some, some time when I said some words and someone told me that saying those words made me a Christian. You know how I know I'm saved? I know I'm saved because living inside of me is the Spirit of God and He tells me that I'm saved. Well, where does that come from? Well, it comes from Romans chapter 8. The Bible says, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be, the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If you don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you aren't saved. If you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. That's how we know that the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. Historically, it began on Sunday night on Resurrection Sunday. From that point on, when anyone got saved, the Holy Spirit came to live inside of them indwelt them and his presence inside of them has the practical value of communicating with you that you are saved i can't tell you if you're saved or not mom and dad can't tell you whether you're saved or not your brother and sister can't tell you whether you're saved or not there's only one person that can tell you whether you're saved or not the holy spirit He tells you whether you're saved or not. Romans chapter 8 verse number 16 says, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That's the only way you can know. That's the only one who can tell you whether you're saved or not. The Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you got the real deal. That you really are saved. That when you broke over your guilt of sin and cried out to God to save you, he really did save you. And that's the only person that can tell you if you're saved. What's the benefit of the indwelling Holy Spirit? That's the person that tells me whether or not I'm saved. In Ephesians chapter 1 verses 12 to 14, the Bible says, Who trusted in Christ after that you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. He's the promised one. He's the fulfillment of God's promise that he would indwell you. That spirit of promise which is the earnest of our inheritance. Until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. When I got saved over 50 years ago, God put the Holy Spirit inside of me. He was the earnest. We don't use that word as much anymore in the English language, earnest money. What's the earnest money that you're going to put down as the down payment? What's the earnest money you're going to deposit as your promise that you'll come back with the rest of the money and complete the transaction? And if you don't come back in the future with the rest of the money and complete the transaction, 
You're going to forfeit the earnest money? The Holy Spirit was the earnest. He was the one that God the Father put inside of me as God's promise that someday I'm going to finish the deal. Right now I'm saving you from the future condemnation of sin. Right now I'm even saving you from the very power of sin. But the day is going to come when I'm going to save you from the presence of sin and you're going to be in heaven where there won't be any sin. And the Holy Spirit was God's down payment. Now, if God doesn't take me to heaven, God loses the earnest deposit. God loses the Holy Spirit. That's why the Holy Spirit is called the earnest until the redemption of the purchased possession. I'm the purchased possession, purchased with the blood of Christ. The Holy Spirit's the down payment guaranteeing me that I'm not going to lose my salvation. And if God changes his mind and doesn't save me, God loses the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the seal that guarantees to me, I am saved eternally and can never lose it because it's not dependent on me. It's dependent on God. That's practical. That's valuable because every day I have in my heart the assurance that I'm really Say there's another value, there's another benefit. The another benefit is that I'm not an orphan. He didn't leave me orphan. He didn't leave me without another comforter to be with me. I don't fend for myself. I have a Holy Spirit that lives inside of me, comforts me, takes care of me, fends for me. I'm not orphaned. I've got the Holy Spirit living inside me. There's another benefit. I have the opportunity now to grow into a child that pleases my heavenly Father. You see, back in John 14, verse 26, we looked at some of those verses. The Bible says, The Comforter, who is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. In John 16, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Living inside of me is the most amazing mentor. Living inside of me is the most amazing individual to mentor me, to teach me, to guide me, to instruct me, to develop me. He's the practical mentor in my life, helping me grow into conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. That's practical. That's every day. I depend on the Holy Spirit. I know I'm saved. I know I'm not an orphan. And I know I'm growing. And it's all because the Holy Spirit lives inside of me, ministering to me from his position indwelling me. By the way, he doesn't promote himself. Jesus said in John 16, 13, He will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. He doesn't promote himself. You can read through the rest of the New Testament, and you know who's promoted? Jesus Christ. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit promotes Jesus Christ. He doesn't promote himself. If he's being promoted, it's probably not him. But he will teach you and guide you to exalt Jesus Christ in and through your life. And the rest of the New Testament emphasizes all of that. So Jesus Christ promised 
There was going to be a coming of the Holy Spirit different than what you've experienced in the past. He started the fulfillment of that promise on Easter Sunday evening service when he breathed on them and the Holy Spirit came to live inside of them. But there was more to it than that. How do we know there was more to it than that? Well, it's obvious because even on that Sunday evening, as Luke records, he told them to stay in Jerusalem until something else happens with the Holy Spirit. And 40 days later, after they had been indwelt for 40 days, 40 days later in Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, now this promise, stay in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. There's, there's a second part of this promise, and it has to do not with the Holy Spirit coming into them, but rather the Holy Spirit coming upon them. And it's very distinctly different. Are you there uh, still around Acts chapter 1? Acts chapter 1, and in verse number 4, the Bible says this is ascension, the day that Jesus ascends. He said, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you've heard of me. Come down to verse number 8. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Not into you. He was already in them. He'd been in them for 40 days. But yet he was not upon them taking control and exercising power. And so it's not over yet. The whole promise isn't fulfilled yet. I, I, we're fulfilling it. We've started, but it's not finished yet. Stay here. Wait. And 10 days later, the day of Pentecost occurred in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit didn't come into them. There's no statement in chapter 2 of the Holy Spirit coming into them. He came upon them. As Jesus said in Acts 1.8, he will come upon you. And on the day of Pentecost, he did come upon them. The confusion sometimes comes with the word filled. Because some people get the idea that the filling of the Holy Spirit is kind of like filling a jug with water. You put the water inside the jug. So the water goes into the jug to fill the jug. And that's, that's an unfortunate assumption. Because the word filled speaks more of taking control of something. Something being absorbed under the influence, having been taken control of. The Holy Spirit that had lived inside of them for 50 days now is going to come upon them as individuals and upon them as a church family. And he was going to come upon them with power. And you know what was going to break out? Revival broke out. And 3,000 souls got saved when that revival broke out. When the Holy Spirit came upon them to empower them for the work of world evangelism. Chapter 2, verse number 4 talks about they were filled, they were controlled. He came upon them. Verse number 3, there appeared unto them cloven tongues, tongues of fire and set upon each of them. And they were filled, controlled, absorbed with the power of the Holy Ghost. You come down to verse number 41 and says, They that gladly received his word were baptized. Same day, 3,000 souls saved and baptized in one day. I would call that a revival. The revival broke out when the Holy Spirit came upon them in power and took control of the situation. 
They were absorbed in his power. So, when did it happen? Well, we just looked at that. What benefit does the filling of the Holy Spirit bring to me? The filling of the Holy Spirit has a practical value in my life. When the Holy Spirit takes control, now he lives inside of me. He's lived inside of me for over 50 years. During that period of time, I know I'm saved, I know I'm not an orphan, and I know I'm growing. As long as I'm cooperating with the work he's trying to do in me to mentor me. That's because he lives inside of me. What value is it to me if the Holy Spirit takes control of me and comes upon me in power? Evangelism takes place. You say, how do you know that? Because back in John 16, in the passages in the upper room, Jesus said in John 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come. If I depart, I'll send him to you. You need me to leave. You know how strange that sounded to those apostles? The guy that they had been following day and night for all of these years, for these years of ministry, and he's saying to you, I'm leaving, and they're beside themselves. They're they're afraid, they're upset, you're leaving. What do you mean you're leaving? He says, you know where I'm going. I, we don't know where you're going. Where are you going? And, and they were confused and they were upset. And Jesus Christ said, guys, you need me to leave. We don't need you to leave, Jesus. We need you to stay. He said, no, you don't. It is expedient for you that I go away. You need me to leave. Because the work that I'm going to give you to do, you can't do. To evangelize the world is outside the realm of possibility for you. You need me to leave. Because in my leaving, I'm going to send the promise of the Holy Spirit. And he will reprove the world. Of sin, righteousness, and judgment, John 16 says. It is expedient for you that I go away. The comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I will, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. This is huge. This is a huge practical benefit. You've got to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've got to get unsaved people saved. How can you do that? You can't. But he can you need him. Not just the indwelling that, that, in, that enables you to know you're saved and know you're not an orphan and know that you're growing through the guiding, directing of your teacher, your mentor. But more than that, you need him to come upon you in power, controlling the situation so that when you witness to someone that's unsaved, they'll get saved. You see, the Holy Spirit does something you can't do. The Holy Spirit will convict the person you're talking to of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. You can tell them you're a sinner, but you can't cause their heart to break in guilt over their sin. You can tell them that they're not righteous, but you can't cause their heart to break over a sense of guilt that they're so far from being righteous. You can tell them that they're facing the judgment of God, but you can't make them break under the weight of sin, guilt. Re he will reprove the world. The word reprove means to cause a person to become guilty. It, it means to cause a person to break under the guilt of the truth that is being conveyed. 
He will reprove the world. You can't do that. Only he can do that. You need him. You desperately need him. So that when you give out a track, when you witness to a person, when, when you share your salvation story, when you tell someone what the Bible says about salvation, the Holy Spirit will take control of the situation. He'll take control of what's going on. And he'll cause that unsaved person to break under the guilt, I'm a sinner, I'm not good, I'm going to hell. You need the Holy Spirit to do the work of evangelism that we can't do without him. Got an email this last week. It was an email from a, from a, a, a young lady who used to come with her family here to Community Baptist Church years ago. When she was here at Community Baptist Church as a uh, middle school age child, around the middle school age years, uh, she made a profession of faith. She prayed and asked the Lord to save her. I baptized her. She became a member of the church. Was faithful here in the church until the family moved. She's now older, much older. She's now in her, um, I guess, around 20 years of age. She emailed me. She said, is there any way I could meet with you? My wife and I had an appointment, met with her for about an hour or so this last week. She said, you know, she said back when I was there at CBC, I, I, I prayed and asked the Lord to save me and I got baptized and we moved. And so I'm so ashamed, embarrassed, the life that I've lived. Things that I've done. She said, I didn't even feel guilty about it. Didn't bother me in the least what I was doing. She said, then a, a friend of mine got saved. And the friend of mine began to have a burden for me. And, and, and my friend told me she didn't think I was saved. And her heart broke. All the conviction of her sin all of the guilt of what she had done for years. All of the turmoil. The Spirit of God just took control of that situation. The Spirit of God just began to draw that girl to Christ. And she prayed and God transformed her life. She said, I just, I'm so excited about Jesus Christ. Says I'm reading my Bible every day. I'm growing. I'm just so excited about what God is doing in my life. I, I've, I've gotten back in church, and, and and I go to church, and and I go to all the services they have, and and then I'm I'm upset because I got to wait three days. I got to wait all the way from Sunday to Wednesday before I can go to church again. Why don't they have a church service on Tuesday? I said, you know, you need to get baptized. She said, I was going to ask you about that. I said, yes, you know, you need to get baptized. She said, I'm going to in two weeks then. At the church where she goes. She says, you think it would be, you think I ought to have a mentor in my life? I said, you know, probably the most important thing that could ever happen to you is to have a mentor that you would meet with every week and it would be ideal for it to be someone in the church that you're going to. 
So God allowed us to make a couple of phone calls and, or a couple of emails and, and, and arrange for a mentor for this individual. It takes the Holy Spirit to convict a person of sin. And until there's conviction of sin, there's no salvation. The work of world evangelism is impossible without the work of the Spirit of God taking control of every situation, coming upon every situation, convicting the heart of every unsaved person, drawing that unsaved person to Jesus Christ, saving the soul of that unsaved person, and transforming their lives into someone that all of a sudden who never felt guilty for their sin in the past, is so embarrassed now of, of what they had done, and so happy. I told this individual the story of that woman that came in to the home of the Pharisee where Jesus Christ was eating, and how, and, and how she stood behind uh, Jesus Christ, and she washed his feet with her tears, and she wept, and she poured lotion on his feet, and she wiped them with the hairs of her head, and she was so broken over her sin, and what and Jesus Christ, Christ has done and the Pharisees began to mock Jesus and the reality was Jesus Christ said you know the one who is forgiven much loves much you don't love me Pharisee you don't know what I've saved her from there's a reason why she's so in love with the message of the gospel that's the spirit of God working in an unsaved person Causing them to feel guilty that you are a sinner, you're not good, and you're going to hell. And when the Holy Spirit convinces and convicts an unsaved person of that reality, then they come to Jesus Christ and they fall in love with the God who washed all of that yuck away and gave them a free pass to heaven. Free to them, but costly to Jesus Christ. You see, this is a theological jargon. When Jesus promised, I will send the Holy Spirit, that was life-changing. That was huge. And when he let the Spirit of God come into them, it brought value. But then, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, it brought another value. The value of being effective in evangelism. Under the power of the Spirit of God. Wow. Well, these are benefits that are precious. Practical benefits that are precious to us. You may think, what, 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 if, what if the Holy Spirit is not actively working? Some people begin to doubt their salvation that really are saved. Because it's the Holy Spirit that convinces them that they're saved. And all of a sudden, if, they're, if the Holy Spirit's not actively working, then, then, then they're not sure they're saved. They, they begin to have to fend for themselves, and they're not growing because the Holy Spirit who lives within them is not bringing the benefits because of their own coldness toward God. And if it's a matter of coldness toward evangelism and the Holy Spirit is not coming upon them, then the end result can be devastating in evangelism. By the way, give you just a little assignment for this week, a little outside Bible study for this week. On the end of your worksheet this morning, 
what happens when the Holy Spirit indwells saved church members but is not actively exercising control in their lives? When he indwells but does not fill, how does that impact the church family? There's a church in the New Testament that was kind of experiencing that. It's called the church at Thessalonica. And at the end of the letter, God said, stop quenching the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was wanting to be active. The Holy Spirit was wanting to bring benefit. And they kept putting a bucket of water on the campfire and extinguishing or quenching the work and activity of the Holy Spirit. And so the letter was sent. And the letter ended by saying, quench not the Spirit of God. The, the tense of the grammar is to, to, to don't continue an activity that's already going on. We would maybe say it, stop quenching. It's the idea of, of quench not when it is happening. It's actually happening. Now, now, what was the ramification? Well, I gave you three little tidbits to get you started. Go back and read them in the context of 1 Thessalonians. And if you look closely in the past history of the church, the Holy Spirit was mentioned three times in 1 Thessalonians before they were told to stop quenching him. And when you examine the context of what the Holy Spirit was mentioned as doing the three times, you'll find powerful conversions, you'll find positive attitudes in spite of persecution, and you'll find moral, holy living. And when you quench the Spirit of God, you stop having powerful conversions, you stop having positive attitudes, everyone's a nitpicker and a complainer and complaining about this, that, and the other. No positive attitudes. And you find Christians don't live holy lives anymore. Immorality begins to have an impact in the life of the church. The Holy Spirit's thumbprints on the life of a church. You quench him and maybe you'll find these things aren't as prevalent in the church anymore. little homework assignment for you this week. To study the practical benefits of the Holy Spirit in the life of of a church. And we want him to be active in community Baptist, don't we? Yeah, we do. We really do. We, we want to see powerful conversions. Amen. We want to see people get saved and, and then they just keep on serving and they start serving and they start doing things for God and they just grow and grow and grow. We, we want positive attitudes. We want people to say, you know, I got persecuted at work for telling someone about Christ, but I'm just going to keep on giving out tracts. Positive attitudes when persecuted. And we want to see people who used to live immoral, act immoral, dress immoral, watch immorality. We want to see the Spirit of God begin to work in their lives. And holiness takes over. And morality takes over. And the growth of holiness grows in the church. That's the work of the Spirit of God bringing benefit to a people who know who He is. Who depend on Him. Maybe even talk to Him every once in a while. John R. Rice, you never knew John R. Rice, did you, Sonny? He's long since gone. John R. Rice, was old. he was an old, old, old preacher when I was a young, young, young preacher. And John R. Rice was at a preacher convention with a bunch of younger preachers, and they were having a prayer meeting. A bunch of young guys just in Bible college, just coming out of Bible college, and they were praying. And John R. Rice was praying, and he prayed to God the Father, and he asked God the Father for something. He, he prayed to God the son, he asked Jesus for this, that. And he prayed to God, the Holy Spirit, asked the Holy Spirit for something in his life. And some young college student, young Bible college student came up to him afterwards and said, Dr. Rice, I was shocked at your prayer today, how you desecrated prayer. 
He said, what do you mean I desecrated prayer? He says, don't you know that theologically we pray to the Father in the name of the Son through the power of the Spirit of God? You talk to every one of them directly. And John R.A. says, you know, son, when you've been in the family as long as I've been in the family, you can talk to any member you want to. (laughs) Yeah. We need the Holy Spirit. Personally, individually, and collectively, we need the Holy Spirit. When Jesus made that promise in the upper room, And repeated it on Resurrection Sunday evening service. That was huge. Life changing. Earth shattering. Huge. Promise that he made. That's impacting us. To this very day.